As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. This is where I'm like, well, if I know I'm so moody, why would I buy books in the first place? So <laughs> let me just go to the library. Like, that solves my problem. Hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next? Episode 311. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, if you're still in the hunt for the perfect literary present, the Modern Mrs. Darcy Book Club has options for monthly, quarterly, or annual memberships you can gift to anyone. Giving a book club membership means you're gifting access to reading inspiration, classes, lively discussions, and online bookworm connections. 2021 bonus perks, it's easy to wrap and never subject to shipping delays. Learn more at modernmrsdarcy.com slash shop and help spread some reading delight this season. Many of our guests identify as mood readers, selecting their next read at whim from a master list of titles that caught their attention. However, today's guest is a mood reader and a to-be-read list rebel. She doesn't want to be locked into any kind of list. But while she enjoys the freedom of picking a book on the fly, this sometimes leaves her in a mad dash to find books that fit what she's looking for right now. Danielle Cullender grew up as a reader in a family that nurtured her love of reading. And now as an adult, she's become a huge advocate for her local library system. This isn't a surprise since she grew up in Philadelphia, home to the first public library in the U.S. She trusts her library to bring her the right book at the right time. But with so many books to choose from, how can she find the right book that matches her mood in the moment? Today, Danielle and I chat about how she's developed her monthly approach to book selection, her appreciation for domestic fiction that questions how well we actually know those closest to us, and her desire for books featuring people of color that are just stories of people being people. I'm here to make some suggestions that I think will fit her current mood and feel like the right books for this moment in her reading life. Let's get to it. Danielle, welcome to the show. Hey, Anne. Super excited to be here. I don't know if you realize this, but you are continuing a recent thread of Philadelphia connected readers we've had on the show. And also Houston, we just spoke with Valerie from Blue Willow Bookshop for our gift giving episode for the year. And you're pulling those threads together this morning. Can you tell I just played 10 days in Europe with my son this morning? Apparently I'm wanting to make connections geographically. Tell me a little bit about who you are and where you are in the world with that intro. 
Yeah. So like you mentioned, I'm in Texas. I'm in Houston. I've been to the Blue Willow Bookshop a couple of times. It's on the other side of town. It's such a beautiful place. Whenever I'm out there, it's nice to, to visit. So I'm in Houston, Texas. Um, I live here with my husband and our son, um, who's 20 months. It's that strange age where it's like not two, but not one for any parents who are trying to describe their children's age. Hopefully you can relate to me. And yeah, we live in Houston with our chocolate lab. We used to have a chocolate lab. They're the sweetest dogs. Don't mind all of the hair that will be everywhere in your house. That's the price you pay for a loving dog. Yeah. Every time I vacuum, which I should be doing twice a day and don't, (laughs) I think, oh man, Daisy, we must love you a lot. (laughs) Danielle, your dog's name is Zora. Tell me about that. My husband and I were trying to think of names that we would potentially like to name our child one day, like an actual human child. And Zora was the one that won. And I realized like, oh, we both really liked this name. We can't use it again. So that's really the story. It was like, it's come from uh, Zora Neale Hurston. So that's what I was wondering. Yeah. When I look back and I thought, well, if we had a daughter and we wanted to name her Zora, we've used the name already. That would be strange to (laughs) to name her Zora, too. There are other beautiful names and other leading lights of literature to draw from. (laughs) Now I'm picturing you you in your home with your books and your atmosphere. And that sounds like a really pleasant place to do your reading, which I know means a lot to you. Tell Mm -hmm. me about your reading life these days. Ah, yes. My reading life. I think, it, one, it definitely has hit a, a much more wonderful stride after both the pandemic um, and our son, who was born right at the beginning of the pandemic. So just trying to figure out how to how to make time for reading. But it's been such an important... Reading is, like for many listeners, such a central part of living and living well for me. Um, I jokingly, you know, I love to say like reading is life and truly reading is life. If anybody's <laughs> a Ted Lasso fan, you know, you know what Finally I'm Finally caught up on the series. So now I get it. Thank you. <laughs> reading is life. It is. And it's <laughs> lovely to, to be exploring new books. Um, and we'll talk about that a little bit more, but books that I hadn't been even interested in reading before, but it's always been such an important part of my life from being a child, you know, growing up in Philly. What I learned as a child is that I believe this is right, that Philadelphia is the home to the first public library in the U.S. If I'm making a mistake, it's either Boston or Philly, but I'm Let's 80% just be bold. sure. Danielle, this yeah. is your episode. <laughs> Claim it. <laughs> we'll fact check later. Mm-hmm. Someone tell me if I'm wrong. Just libraries feature such an important part of my reading life from my, you know, the childhood, my mom getting me a library card so that I can check books out on my own or creating our own little library in our house. We lived in little row homes. So anyone from Philly, you know, like backyards are just kind of a name that you give to a Mm -hmm. small concrete space with gates. But you would create a little reading nook outside for me in the summer uh, with a little chair in our backyard. So just really fostering this love that I have of just sticking my nose in a book and checking out for an hour or so. Always so important to me. I understand that it was really important to your own mother to nurture that love in reading for you. And I imagine that impacts the way you're thinking about raising your son now. Absolutely. Yeah. My mom is a single mom and she grew up in Jamaica. And so she 
left school at a very young age. And I think it's like the equivalent of a ninth grade education. And so she had poor schooling and like poor reading education. Um, But for us, I have four older sisters. Education is incredibly important. And so she actively fostered a love of learning and for, for all of us. But for me, it was Danielle likes books get her a library card and like create spaces for her to read. So Mm. it's really wonderful to have had that nurturing from my mom. And then now that my son is getting older, he also starting to love reading, which is like, oh, I love whatever you want, but it's like, it's extra special that you love something that mom likes to. Um, And so it's wonderful to be able to create his own little library in our house. And he'll grab a book and he'll say, book, read, and try to pretend to read a book to us. So it's so, it's like all of my heart is melting just thinking about it, but it feels like full circle and it's so deeply rewarding. Oh, I'm just so happy for your son and for you Mm -hmm. to picture this at home. What does he enjoy reading right now? Oh my gosh. For the last about five nights, it has been, Oh, the places you'll go. It's a pretty long book for a very small child, and he'll try to extend bedtime. Is that why he chooses it? <laughs> oh, my God. I have no idea. That's a great strategy. But I think he's learned that there's ways that you can be flexible with when you actually go to bed. So we've been reading <laughs> parts of it over and over again or different parts um, and lots of other random books that I can't even, I don't even know where we get them. Every time we're somewhere with books, my husband and I will buy them. So he has lots I'm glad you're creating a literacy-rich environment for him. He's going to have his own reading nooks pretty soon, isn't he? That is the goal, is to actually create like a little hideaway for him, depending on where, you know, what books he wants to read that he can feel like he's just escaping to. That's the goal. That sounds delightful. Danielle, we have an issue in your reading life to dive in today. Mm Mm-hmm. Sometimes readers come and they say, Anne, I have a problem and I think I can help. I have no idea if there is a solution to your struggle with being an incredibly (laughs) moody reader. These were your words, but I'm so curious. I mean, we've, we've got the scene set. I can picture your love of reading. Like I can visualize it after hearing about your mom and how this is so important to you to raise a young reader yourself. And you've got books everywhere. You're not even sure where they came from. I'm sure that you have your own literacy rich environment. Um, if we can say that about adult readers too. And yet mm-hmm. tell me about what it's like to not have to be read lists because they just don't work for you mm-hmm. to be needing to choose books in the moment all the time. I'm so curious to hear more. There's pleasures and then there's real costs. And I think it's like, if I can just minimize some of the costs, I will feel much happier with the pleasures. I love mm-hmm. being a moody reader in that I don't want to stick to any list or any, like, this is the the order of books that I'm going to read things. No, that completely removes the joy of reading. Brenna had said this, um, she was like, even just the act of writing something on a TBR list makes me not want to read it. And I was like, yes, that is so right. Like, I can be so excited about this book and immediately just saying, oh, I'm going to read this in some formal way other than putting it on hold, which is strange, like on hold at the library, uh, feels like it has sucked all of the joy out of reading for me. So I think that the pleasures is I have an interest in something. The right book has found me to fulfill those or satisfy those interests. And I get to enjoy it and like, oh, yes, perfect match. The problem is that, you know, I'll probably put a bunch of books on hold and say I have about four or five books that's off of hold in a given month. Maybe I'll read two of them. The other three, 
I don't want to read. Like they've been on some list and now it's like, okay, we're back down to zero. And every month it is searching for books that fit the mood that I'm in. So that's the problem. So it's creeped from like the pleasure of, you know, serendipity of the right book came to me at the right time. And now it is, okay, let me do a mad dash for books that I want to be reading because I have nothing to choose from. You said this month. Does a mood last a month? Are we truly talking about, I just finished a book and what do I want to read? Like, right now? That's a good question. I'd like to say, I do think about my reading life in monthly increments. Why? I'm not really sure. But it's some sort of structure to think about what I will be reading over the next couple of weeks. I don't know if a mood lasts a month, but I like curating books just for the month, if that makes any sense. So Mm -hmm. maybe, yes. This is so interesting. It sounds like you don't want to be told what to read in your reading life and Mm -hmm. not even by yourself. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Is this true in other areas of your life? Is this unique to your book choices? You know, I'd like to say it's unique to my book choices, but I feel like if my sisters or my husband's listening to this, they may disagree (laughs) with me. (laughs) But I'd like to think I'm very, like, I'm very structured and routine. That I do think is, like, objectively true. Like, Uh I'm very routine, very structured, most other areas of my life. But when it comes to my books, I don't want to be boxed into anything. That's so interesting. And I can see how... It could make things trying. It sounds like you see this as a fundamental part of who you are as a reader. And I'm sure it also says something Mm. about why you enjoy reading in the first place. Yeah, it does. I love one of the things that I love most about reading is that there's an interest, a question or like a feeling that I have and I'm reading a book. It sort of for lack of a better word, it it satisfies that feeling. And so if I'm in the mood for something really heartfelt, and and so I read a book or I hear about a book, either from your podcast, like it is the joy of hearing about a book that like, oh wait, I'm feeling that right now, let me go get it. And so if it's available at the library, like now it feels like, yes, I got it. Or if I put it on hold and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get it. But it's very different if it's too far away from that moment of feeling that feeling that I'm then going to tell myself to be in this mood to read this book. And so it's the joy of, I don't know, the outer world fitting what I'm desiring internally, rather than trying to tell myself how I'm feeling to meet what is available to me in terms of like the selection of books. So you're the boss, not that book. (laughs) I like that. Yeah. This is so interesting. Okay. Before we hit record, we were talking about our desks, both of which are a little more cluttered at the moment than we would prefer. And you mentioned that you had a friend who was super into Marie Kondo and her methods. I didn't expect to talk about Marie Kondo, but this is her thing. She says, the moment to read a book is the time, like the exact time, the right then time when you acquire it, because that's when you wanted it. That's when you sought it out. So if you have unread books, you should get rid of them immediately. And we we are going to the second half of that (laughs) equation alone. But it does sound that for you, you want to read the thing at the moment. You feel like you are ready for it, eager, eager to connect with that story, consume that information. Like you want the book to meet your interest when you are interested. Exactly. I would love to hear about a time that you did read the right book at the right time that you found it or 
it found you and it made all the difference in your reading experience. Actually, you know what? I was saying it made all the difference in your reading experience, but it actually meant that you had that reading experience, I think would be more accurate. Oh, I actually have a really great example. So there is this really thick book. It's nonfiction called Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. Uh And it's a chunker and it's (laughs) dense in the material. And I bought this book maybe last year. I remember thinking like, oh, I want to read this. And so I started reading it. I was like, okay, now the mood has passed. But I revisited the book just a couple of like weeks ago and I blew through it. And I remember thinking like, okay, I had this book for a really long time. I did not pressure myself to read it because I bought it. I tend to not buy books for this very reason because I mean, to Marie Kondo's point, once I've read it and I've enjoyed it, I don't want it anymore. Get off my shelves, like don't clutter my space. But also I may not want to read it when I have it. So like, why am I letting it clog up my space? Why did I waste my money on it when I could have just gotten it from the library and read it or not read it? No skin off my brow. That's what libraries are for. But so I had this book, Thinking Fast and Slow. And at the right time, there were some weird wonderings that I was just having that this book helped me think through. I blew through it and I loved the experience. I was taking notes, flagging pages and thinking about, ooh, how do I want to bring this in a, into work? And like, ooh, when I'm on my walk with my dog, like I want to think through what this means for my own life. That was a perfect reading experience because the mood hit and the book was there. You see the dilemma I'm in, right? The mm-hmm. whole concept of this show is I recommend three books you may enjoy reading next. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to want to read them. Actually, you know what? Maybe the key here is that I need to recommend books that one, hopefully sound amazing to you. And also that like, if you have a book sitting in your desk right now and you want me to give you a pitch for it, it seems like that could be a really effective strategy. Part of the reason why I listen to this podcast is because there's a large enough selection of books, like three books to me is large enough that you can get a sense of it's like different flavors. Mm -hmm. And so not all three books will be in the same genre. Not all three books will tackle the same themes. And essentially, like each one will stoke different feelings in me. And so sometimes I'm having a mood that I hear about a book and it matches or I hear about a book and I'm like, ooh, that just sounds so good. Like I think Goodnight Beautiful was a, a book that was recommended on the show. And I heard about it. I was like, ooh, that sounds good. And I blew through it. But I wasn't in a particular mood for a thriller. So I don't think there's a a tension between the prospect of recommending three books and the reality of me maybe being in the mood for them or not being in the Mm -hmm. mood for them. What I'm really glad to hear in this whole dialogue is that you know this to be true about yourself and you're not for example, listening to conversations on the podcast with other readers who have completely different reading personalities and beating yourself up about not being able to create a priority TBR that you follow and not being able to schedule time to read because you know what makes you different for a reader. And I want to be clear, like I am not trying to talk you out of this thing you know about Mm -hmm. yourself, but if I didn't hear acceptance Mm. of your reading habits methods. That's the conversation we would be having right now. (laughs) And I think something that many readers might bristle at, I doubt you're one of them, but many readers would think like, oh, I would feel so guilty if I bought a book and it was on my shelf and I didn't read it forever. You you were fine with that. And Mm. that's why that book was still there when you were ready 
for it. So I don't think that we need to have this conversation that goes like, oh, Danielle, it's a, it's okay. It's okay. Let's learn to work. <laughs> but like who you are as a reader is okay. Like good even. You're okay with this. But sometimes it leaves you a little bit going, ah, help. Absolutely. Years ago, I felt like, oh gosh, I should be different. Everybody's doing TBRs. And I think it's only by realizing it does not work for me that I've had to create another strategy. And this is why I'm such a big proponent of libraries. 99% of my reading comes from library books and it's only fiction or nonfiction that I'm having what my professor from college would say is conversations with the text that mm -hmm. I need to write into the margins that I actually buy and keep. This is where I'm like, well, if I know I'm so moody, why would I buy books in the first place? So <laughs> let me just go to the library. Like that solves my problem or at least a large part of my problem. Many readers buy books because that way the, the book is there when they want to read it. But it sounds like you have an amazing library that's doing that job for you. Absolutely. If my friends are listening to this, they will totally be like, either roll their eyes or giggle to themselves because they know <laughs> I'm always like, get your library card. Do you have your library card? Get your library card. <laughs> but truly, I think most people... If you live in a major city, let me not say most, but if you do live in a major city, you are most likely have access to one or maybe two really great library systems. And so in Houston, we have the Houston Public Library, but we also have the Harris County Public Library. And so you can borrow books digitally, et cetera. All to say, yeah, there's great libraries. Why not use them? I want to take a moment to make explicit to our listeners something that, Danielle, you know, and I know, and that is the fact that you are an extreme mood reader is not interfering with you reading excellent books. Exactly. That is happening or else we would be having a different conversation. Exactly. Okay. I was worried. Now I'm excited to find out, well, what books are you in the mood for today? And mm -hmm. you know how we're going to begin to answer that question. We get to talk about the books you love. Yay. You know what we are going to do next. You're going to share three books you love, one book you don't, and what you've been reading lately. I would especially love to hear as you share those, what made each book the right book for you at the time mm. you read it. And then we'll talk about what you may enjoy reading next. How did you choose these, Danielle? So I tried to choose them based on which books I read that I wanted to replicate the reading experience. And so the, the, essentially the feelings that I felt while reading them, um, all of them were books that I was like, okay, I want to return to immediately as soon as I have a free moment. But they either challenged me to think about things that I thought I knew about in a new way, or like I wanted to apply what I learned immediately, or they're books that just like touched my heart in ways that I wasn't expecting. I don't know if any of them will stand like the test of time favorite books ever. Maybe they will, maybe, who knows, but definitely reading experiences that I want to replicate. I really like that approach. What's book one? So the first book is called The Knicks by Nathan Hill. Oh, yes, Danielle, this is one I've checked out of the library three times and haven't read. Tell me more. Maybe this is the moment for me. <laughs> When you said the O, I was like, oh, what is I know, that I just realized I probably worried you. No, it's not, it's not a bad thing. Still to this day, when I think about the book, I giggle and I have a smile on my face. One of my favorite lines in all of the books I've ever read has come from this book. So this is where I think like, maybe this is a book that stands the test of time thus far for me. Are you going to tell us the line? I know I've written it down in several journals. Ah, even trying to think of like the context of why it's good falls short. So ah, no, I'm not even going to attempt it. It's so, so I see what you're though. doing. I have to read it myself. 
Yes, read it. So it's a really touching book. It's also a bit of a satire and social commentary, Mm -hmm. which I wonder if this book were written now, one, how it would be received and also what the comments on society would be. But it's a beautiful mother-son story. It spans generations. You're looking at people across time, which I really love. And I feel like Nathan Hill invites you to see what persists over time in a person. Like, what are the things that never change about them? And what are the things that do change? And what does that say about our interpretation of, of who they are? He also invites us, I think, to ask, like, can you really know the people that you are close with? Like a mother and a son, you'd hope that you'd know each other really well, a husband and a wife of your child, one of the main characters. Also, you go back in time and you see her experience with her family. Do you really even know the people that you're really closest with? That's my plug for the Knicks. I'm going to push it to you and check it out from the library again. I hear you loud and clear. (laughs) It's worth it. Just I wish I could read it for the first time again with you. Duly noted. Danielle, tell me about the second book that you loved. So the second book is Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng. I'm sure everybody's probably seen, at least seen this book. If you walk through an airport, you've probably seen it. I've talked to someone on a plane because uh, she was reading it for the first time. And I sort of, she was sitting next to me and I think I just overwhelmed her with my excitement. But (laughs) (laughs) she seemed far less enthusiastic. And I was a little, I was like, oh, but it's so good. This is like domestic fiction at its best. I love, I feel like Celeste Ng, she she looks at quote unquote normal life, the kind of bland life of maybe life in the suburbs and exposes all of the complexities in it because the people themselves are complex. Mm-hmm. I love to go to bed early. Like I said, I'm very routine. I go to bed early, wake up early. I was staying up late to finish this book. It's so good. You don't like none of the characters are are wholly good, wholly bad, which is my favorite complex characters. And sort of similar to the Knicks is that you have families or family members who think they know each other, but they're all keeping really big secrets from one another. And it begs the question of like, how well can you know the people that you're closest with? That's very interesting. Danielle, what did you choose to complete your favorites list? I'm wondering if we're going to continue to hear that those themes that you've drawn out in the Knicks and Little Fires. Yes, in a different way. So the my final pick is The Righteous Mind uh, by Jonathan Haidt. Yeah, I've been meaning to read this book for so long. This is the one book that I, like if I were to die on a hill of like, please read this, everyone, this is the book. So it's The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Religion and Politics. I really do invite everyone to read this book if you're remotely interested with as open of a mind as possible. Um, So Jonathan Haidt is a psychologist. I think now he's at NYU. One of his sort of threads of research is on moral psychology. And that's what The Righteous Mind looks at. He proposes this idea of, I think it's called moral foundations theory, which is trying to make sense of why certain people have affinities for particular uh, political leanings and why often when we think we're having conversations with people and we're right and they're wrong or vice versa, we're often talking past each other because 
we're expressing different values and even different definitions of those very values. So what it means to be fair means something very different for people who might have political leanings to the left versus people who might have political leanings to the right. I read this book early this year. And so this was after the election, a deeply contentious time in our country. I found myself like being really angry a lot of the time when I would you know, watch the news, listen to the news. And I couldn't understand why I was getting so worked up on things that on its face are not really like if you could just take a bird's eye view for a moment, you'd wonder like, why, why are you getting so worked up over something is not that deep, but it felt like it was encroaching into things that were very essential to the way that I viewed the world. After I read The Righteous Mind, it started to make a bit more sense as to why I was so attached to particular worldviews. And it felt like those worldviews were not shared by everyone. And that made me angry. I think if you are curious and you want to be a good person in the world, I do think that this should be a part of your reading as well as whatever, you know, thinkers, etc. I just think it provides a bit more context, a different way of looking at the things that we all find really important. That sounds completely fascinating. And I can see how even though this is nonfiction, it does continue the themes that interest you. Absolutely. I really love to see how something is a bit more complicated than I first think. And maybe it isn't. Maybe I just like to make things more complicated than they need to be. (laughs) But I think I really bristle with any idea that puts the world into simplistic or binary views that these people are good, these people are bad. And so even the fiction that I read, there's some characters in Little Fires Everywhere and the Knicks that are like on their face, gross. But when you learn about one, their story, but the way that they think about the world, it it forces me to question, okay, is my assessment of them actually accurate? What do I lose by making such a simplistic judgment about people's goodness, badness, intentions, etc. Danielle, tell me about a book that was not right for you. This book, I'm, I'm laughing because uh, it was so not right for me, I didn't finish it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if you're going to say the one I think you did, I love this book. Tell me more. Okay, so it's The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue. I did not like this book because there was no plot. I was about 50 percent through this book. I was reading it on my Kindle, on audio, and I kept thinking, okay, in the next chapter or something, something's going to happen. Oh, okay. In the next chapter, something's going to happen. But at some point I was like, wait, did did the major thing happen? Did I miss something? And so I searched for reviews that like, okay, spoil it for me. I don't really care. I'm confused about what's happening. And once I realized that this book was, in my opinion, it's plotless. But for people who loved the book, I'd love to understand, like, maybe I missed something. I still may not like it. But like, what did you view as the plot? I realized there wasn't anything else that was like, there was something else that was going to happen, but not really. And I said, oh, no, I need to stop reading this book. Like, it felt like nothing happened. Something I really loved this about this book was the way V.E. Schwab used language. And she had a few recurring motifs that showed up over and over again in different ways. And there were so many echoes through the slightly changing circumstances through the centuries of um, just seeing new incarnations of the same images. And darn it, mm-hmm. my, my copy that I have all marked up in is not that far out of reach. But I think there were keys and there were mm. arrows and there were constellations. And she 
played with the language I found fascinating. Mm. And I imagine that's not what you're looking for when you read. It's really helpful to hear why people who loved this book loved it. It makes sense once you said it. Once you said like, oh, this was happening. I was like, yes, I did notice that. And that's not, I think to your point, I would only love that if there was also a plot or if there was more of a plot. Yeah. (laughs) It actually has some motifs that you really enjoy, but this is not the package in which Mm -hmm. you want to um, encounter them. Like secrets are such a Mm -hmm. thing in this book and how it's easier to share them than to keep them. But sometimes Mm. we really have to keep them. And I'm just thinking of what you said about you love the Knicks, you loved Little Fires Everywhere. And one of those questions is, can we really truly know the people we love? And this book is asking the same question, but it's doing it in a very different, less plotty, less pacey, way. Memory was a huge thing. There's a bird sculpture that she circles back to Mm -hmm. several times. I mean, there's a bookstore cat, but that wasn't enough to redeem it for you. (laughs) You may enjoy reading about those themes, but that is only one component of what makes a great reading experience. And that was not enough for you. And that is okay. And it really is helpful as we think about what you may enjoy reading. Mm -hmm. Danielle, what have you been reading lately? Ah, yes. So many good books. I feel like this this year was full of really great reading. So one book that I read recently that I loved was Mary Jane by Jessica Anya Blau. I have no idea where I heard this book, but it's darling. I think that is the way that I could describe this book. It's a gorgeous coming of age novel. Oh my gosh. When I finished it, I walked out of our room and I was just like, oh, I was saying to my husband, I just finished the greatest book. It is all of those feels. I don't even know how to describe what happens. It has a plot, not like Addie LaRue. (laughs) There's a, a young girl, I think she's 13 or 14, named Mary Jane, and she is working as a summer nanny for this family that is completely different from hers. And it's one of those books that like, but bring you back to early childhood makes you think of when you started to define yourself for yourself, started to question your own family's ideas. And how do you still feel a sense of belonging and acceptance with your family when you begin to not be the person that they think that you are? And it's so touching. The end is like, oh, I love that book. It's so good. All the feels. One of my favorite reading experiences thus far this year was Mary Jane. Loved it. How would you describe the writing style of this one? I don't know how I would describe it. I think there were moments that I felt like the author was using the thinking and language of a 14-year-old. So it doesn't feel YA in the sense of the dialogue and even the internal dialogue. It's not too flowery, but it's descriptive enough that evokes emotion, if that makes any sense. Uh makes you feel how Mary Jane would have felt being a a young girl noticing like the adults doing adult things, if that makes any sense. Interesting. What else have you been reading? So this one is nonfiction. And I feel like these choices make it seem like I read a whole lot more nonfiction than I do. Or maybe I read more than I think. I have no idea. But recently finished, and I actually still have it on my Kindle because I keep going back to it. Self-Portrait in Black and White, Uh Unlearning Race by Thomas Chatterton Williams. It's nonfiction. It's a collection of essays. This was one of those books that like I keep having to reread it because I'm like, do I agree with what you've said or 
do I just misunderstand it or do I understand? Like, I, I don't really know how I feel about it. And I love that a lot. And it's similar to the nonfiction that I've read in that it's forcing me to think about things that I think I know really well in different ways. Thomas Chatterton Williams, as the subtitle says, Unlearning Race, he's exploring what it means for him to no longer identify as a Black man. He makes it a case as to why we should all reject race. And it's sort of heady and like very intellectual, but not so much so that you can sort of dismiss it as like, okay, this is sort of like intellectual navel gazing. I even failed to find the right language to describe this book. It's a book that essentially is challenging me to think about race in ways that I have never encountered before. What led you to pick this up? I have no idea. Professionally, I'm a diversity and inclusion consultant. Mm -hmm. And so the company that I work for, we work with companies um, to help them create cultures where all employees can thrive, regardless of things like race, gender, sexual identity, et cetera, and helping them create policies, processes, and just team dynamics that help foster that. And so I'm constantly being confronted with the way that these social identities pan out in the workplace. And I've always had a particular way of viewing the very social identities. And there's something that's I don't know if just like working in it for long enough and then I can in this field long enough, I can start to see what are our prevailing values and ideologies, ways of trying to interpret the world. And are those actually accurate or maybe accurate isn't the right, right word, but like, are they doing us more harm than good or what are the costs? What are the benefits? And so I think I was just reading like the New York Times and Thomas Chatterton Williams writes for the New York Times. This book came out a couple years ago. So I really don't even know what the particular steps were in me finding it, but uh -huh. it came on my radar and it felt like it was interest that I had and write book, write interest. And I enjoyed it. I'm glad that you did. Danielle, we know we're looking for the right book for you for right now, but is there anything specific you would like to add into the hopper that you're looking for in your reading life right now? The thing that I'd like to add into my reading life right now is more fiction that features people of color as main characters. But the book itself is not like this hard hitting exploration of what it means to be X race or X like fill in the blank in the, U the U.S. Like, I don't know if it's this is just the way that books are marketed. Mm -hmm. Like, the, for example, I think The Other Black Girl, it's also in the title. I'm sure it's a great book, but I was like, I'm not trying to read another book about a Black person where their race is the central part of the book. Mm -hmm. I just want to read books that feature people of color where they're just being people. I'm having a hard time finding that. So Jasmine Guillory books, I love. Helen Huang's books, I love. They're romance. And so I, I, nothing wrong with romance, but I just want to read other genres where the race is not the central part of the book. We just do things. We live lives. We brush our teeth. We fall in love. We investigate murders. Like, can we, I just want to see us doing normal things. That's what I'm yearning for the most in my reading life right now. I'm tempted to say, but what kind of things, Danielle? But you you told me, like, falling in love, investigating murders, getting on a train to the past. <laughs> exactly. Okay, okay. But not a hard-hitting exploration of what it means to be blank in... Exactly. Which gives us lots of room to play. Ooh, good. That sounds awesome. Danielle, the books you loved, The Nicks by Nathan Hill, 
Little Fires Everywhere by Celeste Ng and The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Not For You, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab. Lately, you've really enjoyed Mary Jane by Jessica Anya Blau and Self-Portrait in Black and White by Thomas Chatterton Williams. We know what you're on the hunt for. I'm really tempted to find you something just darling and adorable like um, Mary Jane sounded. That sounds like so much fun. And the tone actually makes me think of several books that might be good. I'm wondering if you may enjoy a new 2021 spring release by um, Sanjana Sathian called Gold Diggers. This also is not a YA novel, but it begins with two high schoolers. They're Indian Americans. They live in an, I believe, affluent community outside Atlanta. And this is not a hard hitting book about, but it (laughs) is a thoughtful exploration of identity. Neil is an underperforming Indian American kid. His parents expect great things of him and they're getting those great things from his sister who's going to go to Duke on scholarship and teach She's just making him look bad all over the place. But he and the girl next door, one of his best friends and also has his heart, they are not really making their parents' hearts sing with appreciation and pride because of their um, lackluster academic performance. So they find a shortcut. And there's just this little drop of magic in the book. Mm. It involves uh, stealing gold actual gold. The book is called Gold Diggers, strategically stealing gold. They, they turn it into lemonade. They drink oh. it and they come to embody the better, more appreciated by their elders, more ambitious traits of those from whom the gold was taken. So these poor kids feel like they're trapped. They find this way out, but this way out comes at a cost. Mm. And something I like about this book for you is you see them in high school finding this incredible shortcut, secret happiness. Oh, this is so great. You flash forward and you see them 10 years later when they are older, they're passed across again in California. They embark on this series of Silicon Valley shenanigans, but you do get to see them at different moments in time, which I think can Mm. satisfy some of your, what is circumstantial? What is internal? How much can people change? Are they recognizable over time? I think this book has a lot of the traits of things you enjoy. This poor kid, Neil, uh, he is not always sympathetic. Like he's shallow, he's awkward, he's selfish. And at the same time, he's a high school boy that you recognize in a world you know, and he's deeply sympathetic in that way. Mm. He he feels real, he's not idealized. Um, The same goes towards Anita. You said that you're interested in seeing what persists over time in a person. Can you ever know anyone? And something else in the themes of the books you enjoyed were what are we willing to do for the people we love? And I think we have Mm -hmm. all those here in a package that is a little bit clever, uh, definitely unexpected, a little fun and lighthearted at times, and yet addressing um, themes that deeply matter to all of us. How does that sound to you? Oh, so, so good. I'm going to hold off because there's two more coming, but I'm like, mm, yes, give it to me now. <laughs> oh, that's right. And let me think. I'm going to say this was a 2021 new release that had not so much buzz that you're like, yeah, 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 I've seen it everywhere, but enough that I imagine your library has it. Mm-hmm. That might be the sweet spot we're going for here. <laughs> Next, 
If you have not made the acquaintance of novelist Jean Kwok, I believe that you would enjoy her work. She may be best known for Girl in Translation, but the one I have on my mind, and I'll be quite honest, it's because I read it the most recently and the plot is fresher, is called Searching for Sylvie Lee. But this is another story that asks, what can we really know about the people that we love the most and what may surprise Mm. us, what secrets are the people we love keeping from us, even though we think we thoroughly know them. You said you wanted to see people of color doing things. Um, This is definitely part family drama. You said solving murders. It's part suspenseful mystery. As you read it, it may be interesting to know that it was inspired by a real life tragedy in in Kwok's own past. But this story begins when her family discovers that Sylvie, the confident, beautiful, golden child of this family, she visits the Netherlands to visit her dying grandmother, but then she disappears. Her family is beside themselves. They, you know, send emissaries to search for her. There's family in the Netherlands as well. But as they search for Sylvie, we learn about the family's complicated past and Sylvie's own upbringing as the daughter of Chinese immigrants, first in the Netherlands and then in the United States. And as her sister looks for her, she keeps discovering increasingly startling secrets, but not really any easy answers to any mm. of them. You know, she, she's on the search to answer a question, and instead she keeps turning up more and more questions. This is plotty. This is pacey. Uh, I hope you find it page turning. Uh, I was really surprised by the ending. We didn't discuss endings today, but I don't think that would be a disappointment to you. But I think especially because you enjoyed Celeste Ng's work, I think this could be a really good pick for you. How does that sound? Okay, we're two for two right now. So I'm excited to hear the last one. That was Searching for Sylvie Lee by Jean Kwok. I might be breaking my own rule here because I said we want to find you books that are not everywhere. But have you read Deacon King Kong by James McBride yet? I've heard of it, yeah. You said that on the show... You know, not all books are the same and every book is a different flavor. I want to put this flavor on your menu. How do we finish out that metaphor? Um, (laughs) McBride is brilliant, realistic fiction that investigates relationships and families and uh, what lies beneath the surface that we would be uh, surprised, dismayed, shocked to be Mm -hmm. discovered. And this story sounds really heavy uh, as as I'm about to describe it. And some of the themes certainly are, but it is the sense of humor is so, oh, it's so funny. Um, But it does begin with a shooting. It's 1969. We're in South Brooklyn. It's in the Cause Houses Housing Project. 1969. The, The main character of the book is a drunk deacon, Deacon King Kong. His nickname that everyone calls him his sport coat. And he wanders into the courtyard and shoots the drug dealer he'd once treated like a son. Just mm. right in front of everyone, point blank. This is, sh- I mean, this is a jolting beginning. Told with this like laid back, eyebrow raised, <laughs> leisurely, humorous tone. <laughs> but after that shocking event happens at the beginning of the book, McBride zooms way out to show, how did we get here? Like, how did that mm. violent act come to take place? In doing so, he explores the lives of the shooter and the victim and the victims couldn't be more bumbling friends and the residents who witnessed it and the neighbors who heard the rumors, kind of bumbling also cop who's supposed to be undercover and doing a terrible job of <laughs> fooling anyone. The members of the church 
where he was a deacon, the neighborhood mobsters, because they are very present in the page and their families. I felt like he was moving us in circles through the community, like taking a time to camp out and say like, what does this person's life look like from Mm. the inside, which is very different from the outside. What does this person's life look like? I so enjoyed just bopping across the community. The way things come together, when I set out on this journey, with James McBride and Sport Coat. I did not know where we were going, but you see how everything funnels down and just go, wow, right there in this community. Who knew? Um, yes, that's okay. This We're three for three. I don't know how I'm going to choose. <laughs> I really don't. Let's revisit the books we talked about today. Gold Diggers by Sanjana Sathian, Searching for Sylvie Lee by Jean Kwok, and Deacon King Kong by James McBride. But Danielle, what I want to know is, what are you in the mood for right now? Honesty, I've already put all three books on my bookshelf through Libby. So Gold Digger, Searching for Sylvie Lee, and Deacon King Kong. So technically in the mood for all three of them. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I guess if that's okay by you, it's okay by me. Thinking of like when I hop into bed to start reading, which one will I go for first? Oh, it might be too early to know. We're hours from bedtime. Yeah. Do I have to choose one? No, I'm very interested in seeing what your bedtime self decides. Yeah, they're already on my Kindle. So (laughs) (laughs) you are fast. (laughs) All right. I hope the mood holds till evening. Danielle, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking books with me today. Thank you so much. Anne. this was such a treat for me. Readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Danielle, and I'd love to hear what you think she should read next. To see all those titles we discussed today, go to the show notes at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 311. If listening to our show brings you bookish joy each week, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Your ratings and reviews spread the book love by helping readers find our show. Thank you for that. Follow us on Instagram at whatshouldireadnext for more bookish goodness. Plus, follow me at Ann Bogle, that's Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L, where I share the latest from my own shelves and quick tips to enhance your reading life. The best way to know what's happening in What Should I Read Next land is in our weekly newsletter. Sign up at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter to receive a short preview of that week's episode and a few other tidbits I think you'll enjoy. Please make sure you're subscribed in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, and more. Tune in next week for more readerly recommendations and talk about all things books and reading. Thanks to the people who make this show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. At a time when change is constant and we are pulled in far too many directions, we need a way to stay present to life and to increase our ability to remain calm, think clearly, and maintain our well-being. Many studies indicate mindfulness improves our mental, emotional, and physical health. On a Mindful Moment with Teresa McKee, you can learn how to practice mindfulness and enjoy its many benefits. Tune in for guided meditations and to hear tips and advice from some of the most respected experts in the fields of mental health and mindfulness. 
the world truly can be a better place. It all starts with a mindful moment. Do you find it hard to sleep at night? Then the Sleep Cove podcast can help you. Hi, I'm Christopher Fitton, the voice and clinical hypnotherapist behind Sleep Cove. Sleep Cove features sleep hypnosis, meditations and bedtime stories, all designed to help those of you who struggle at night to achieve a restful and peaceful night's sleep. Search for Sleep Cove on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and see why Sleep Cove helps millions of people sleep deeply.